0: to be speaking with uh, two gentlemen who have been abroad uh, doing volunteer work or coordinating volunteer work in in, in poor countries. And this uh, interview was inspired by another one, which aired exactly a week ago, with Dr. Edward O'Neill, the author of Awakening Hippocrates. Uh, He is now an ER doctor in Boston who has done a great deal of volunteer work uh, in third world countries. And now has an organization which helps to coordinate this kind of volunteer work uh, with other physicians. And his book, Awakening Hippocrates, uh, is one effort for him to, uh, in a sense, awaken greater interest uh, in this possibility of more and more uh, members of of the medical profession uh, taking some time and bringing their energy and know-how to uh, places that so desperately need better health care. We have two gentlemen with us today who uh, actually have done exactly that. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Peter Emer, who is an optometrist uh, here in Kenosha with a practice at 3612 Roosevelt Road. And uh, he recently went to uh, the Dominican Republic and volunteered his time. And uh, he'll be talking with us about that experience. Also with us is uh, uh, Dr. Roger Lindberg, who is professor of biology at Carthage College, where he teaches anatomy and physiology, among other things, he has helped to coordinate a frequent trip uh, made to Nicaragua by students, uh, I believe most of the time from both Carthage and the University of Wisconsin Parkside. Yes. And uh, part of that experience has been to uh, to work in, in a field hospital in Nicaragua. So both of these gentlemen uh, come to the table today with with very related stories and yet different stories. And I think Hearing from them both is going to be a tremendously interesting uh, experience today. So Dr. Peter Emer, Professor Roger Lindbergh, we welcome both of you to the morning show. Thank you. Good to have you here. Uh, Professor Lindbergh, let's talk for a moment about this frequent trip which has occurred to Nicaragua. Just sketch for us a little bit what what occurs.
1: Each year, um, faculty from Carthage College lead a group of students from uh, Carthage College, mostly from Carthage, but some from Parkside as well. On what we uh, call a medical mission trip to Nicaragua. Uh, Students accompany Nicaraguan physicians to clinics in remote villages on the island of Ometepe in Lake Nicaragua. Each year for the past five years uh, students, there's about 25 to 30 students each year, uh, each year they are encouraged to um, solicit donations from Oh, from um, pharmacies or from their local hospitals, and they fill one large suitcase with that kind of uh, donated medicine and bring it down to Nicaragua uh, and and provide it for the clinics there. We also uh, encourage donations to a Nicaragua uh, medical fund, we call it, at Carthage, where we buy generic drugs from a wholesale generic drug uh, company in Europe and these drugs are shipped directly to Nicaragua, where they are dispensed by the physicians there. Uh, we usually arrive, and the pharmacies are bare, and they get filled up. We'd li- we would like to uh, continue this and provide this kind of care throughout the year. We are only there during the month of January, during our January term, uh, for a couple of weeks. So each of those trips involves at least 10 days in clinics on the island. Is this a trip which occurs every year? For the past five years, it has, yes, so we hope to continue it
0: for many years to come. very good on the morning show, maybe three years ago, I had the pleasure of speaking with several of the students that participated, and yes. uh, Dr. Greg Mayer from Parkside and Dr. Julio Rivera from Carthage right. and we spent uh, a nice time, but we kind of talked about both facets of the trip the the geographical study and also the uh, the the biological work and so on but uh, it, w- it was a great pleasure, and you could tell from just talking to these students that it was a very powerful experience for them.
1: Yes, some of the uh, comments that we get from students are especially telling. I, uh, we, we conduct an interview at the close of the class and ask what was the best part of the trip and the worst part and so on and what did you learn. And uh, one of the students uh, mentioned, well, I realized after seeing the people there and how poor they are, they make about a dollar and a half a day as average um, wage, that um, my worth as a person was not determined by the label on my jeans. Mm. I thought that was uh, quite a telling comment from a student that had been certainly moved by that experience. Wow,
0: very good. Well, we'll certainly dig into uh, some more specifics about exactly the kind of work that you did. Dr. Peter Emer, you were uh, not, of course, involved in, in that kind of a trip, and yet uh, you were part of some sort of organized effort. Tell us a little bit about how you made your way to the Dominican Republic. And, and by the way, when did that happen?
2: I went in uh, January of this, this last winter, oh, so okay. for about a week. Um, Father Orio is a mission priest where I uh, went in the Dominican Republic, a little community called Sabana Yega, um, a city spread out, maybe about 20,000 people. And he had been uh, a priest at St. Mary's in Kenosha in the, in the 90s. And when he became a mission priest, he would come back maybe every year or two and just do some fundraising for his mission work. And, Two parishioners, in particular, Jim and Sandy Risi, um were asked by Father, "You know, can you find some some um, medical people to come and a uh, dentist, optometrist, uh, physicians to help out at at uh, where, where I'm staying, where my mission is?" So that's how it all started. Jim and Sandy Reese asked me about maybe a year before I went, and uh, in, in that year's time, because it was the first time I've ever done something like this, I looked into just what do I all need to do, securing glasses. Um, eye drops, if possible, and portable equipment that I could mm. take with me. Otherwise, it really would have been difficult to do a whole lot if I had to transport a lot of uh, bigger equipment that sometimes I use in my business in town. So that's kind of how it started with Father Oriel, and he was wonderful because he uh, facilitated the mission. He met us at the airport. If there are any problems with anything at the airport, with customs and this and that, he was there to help us. Um, we weren't very... Uh, Spanish-speaking, all. we weren't. And, but Father was so bilingual that sometimes little things would come up where he would, he would be helpful. And he had facilities for us to stay. He set up where I would have the clinic. So a lot of the pre, pre-work pre was done by him, and that, that helped me to really feel like, hey, I can do this, and it's going to work fine. Now, you, you, you've been talking about we. Was there a, a group of you that went down to do this work? Yes, mainly prisoners from St. Mary's. And I, you know, trained some of them in how to check eyes, examine eyes, not uh, examine eyes, but do some of the pre-testing for me. I taught some of them how to adjust glasses. And um, Sandy Reese is a nurse, so she was real helpful dispensing Mm -hmm. prescription eye drops when when I did prescribe drops. So it was mainly a group from St. Mary's, and uh, my wife and I are from St. Anne's in town. So um, it was a group of about 10 people. But um, about five or six were the ones that participated in the actual checking of the eyes and setting up the actual clinic. Very good. I think in both
0: cases, uh, you were staying with, with families down there. And is that the way that is, was for the students in Nicaragua? As Actu- well?
1: Actually, we stayed at a biological clinic oh. on the island of Ometepe. Uh, Dr. Pat Fafel um, is also a professor at Carthage, uh, went on a trip to kind of scope out the area and find out what could be done in this regard and met a man there named Alvaro Molina who runs this biological station, but also has some, uh, you know, can be a, a provider, um, as uh, the father was, for, the, for your trip. Mm-hmm. And uh, this Al- Alvaro Molina um, kind of helped us in getting through customs, helped organize the physicians with whom students uh, would, would visit the clinics, and uh, really set up our trip and itinerary to uh, help us through that part of the trip. So I think without somebody in the country, I think it would be very difficult to do this. I I have heard from him that other groups have done this. And, in fact, in one instance, he had arranged for us to go to a clinic in a remote village, and someone else just showed up and mm. uh, decided this was where they were going to be. And they had 20 physicians, and it was a really big deal. So wow. we, we our, there was no need for our students to go there. That's one of the reasons why we're trying to do this in a more official way mm. through the Ministry of Health in Nicaragua, um, much like you're doing with, with the Father, to ensure that we have, um, uh, you know, we have their approval, first of all, and then secondly, that we're not duplicating efforts uh, that someone else might be involved in.
0: So you end up going where you're really needed. We yeah, hope so, yeah, yes, right. exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, Dr. Amir, you... Uh, Dr. Emer, you actually stayed with a a family or families down there, I believe.
2: Yes, Father had each of us set up to stay with local villagers. And uh, that was really, you know, eye-opening because the houses are so small and maybe half the houses have a floor. Um, Most, all of them don't have any running water. They collect water in in containers on the roof and they they just use the rainwater. And uh, a typical night would... um, would we, we'd go into our bedroom, and, and our host, Rosita, would drop off about maybe a three-gallon can of water. And she more or less said, that's what you have now for showering and, and bathing. That's all I can, you know, allow you to have. And so showers were quite an eye-opening, you know, uh, procedure there because we stood in a tub, and with cups, we just kind of pour the water over our heads. And uh, that's the way we would shower. So there was no running water, and the electricity would just be on and off throughout the night in the distant villages in the Dominican Republic. Um, very unreliable source of electricity. In the bigger cities like uh, Santo Domingo, I think it's a little more reliable. But where We were, like the ceiling fan that we were lucky enough to have in our home, would usually go out in the middle of the night. So we'd, we'd be cool when we went to sleep, which was maybe okay, mm. but when we woke up in the middle of the night, it was, it was pretty darn hot. Even in the winter there, it was uh, you know in the, in the 70s, and usually mid to high 80s throughout the day. So it was pretty warm. Mm.
0: Now, where you were, uh, Dr. Emer, um, in, in this village, a relatively small village, uh, was there basically nothing in the way of eye care available to those villagers? I mean, unless someone from the outside came in.
2: Right. I would say uh, in that village, um, there might have been uh, an eye doctor maybe you know, 15, 20 miles away. As far as somebody needing surgery, like cataract surgery, then we're talking more uh, a city, Azua, which was maybe about an hour away. So there really wasn't much around. And, and more importantly, there really wasn't even anything minor, like there's no Walgreens on the corner, you know, where you can buy some uh, half eye glasses if you just need some basic glasses, inexpensive glasses just for reading. There's nothing like that available. And the people are so poor. I'm not sure just what they make each day, but most of them don't work. And um, there really is no money, even if, if, if there was something where they could afford to purchase something like that. Mm. Um,
0: Dr. Lindberg, uh, th- this clinic where you work, of course, always exists. So in a, it's, it's not that it springs into life
1: when, when Carthage students arrive. That, that's right. Uh, th- there are actually um, five remote villages in which uh, clinics are located. These clinics are visited by a physician that, is, um, that resides on the island about once every six weeks or so. Mm. So uh, if there is an immediate care uh, problem going on, the uh, villager would, would hitch a ride because it's either you, none of them have cars or very, very few. And so they'd hitch a ride on maybe one of the banana trucks or, or plantain trucks and ride to the uh, physician's village where he mans the clinic every day. And then periodically he'll ride his bicycle out to the other clinics to see patients out there. We call that his ambulance on the island Mm -hmm. is a bicycle. Uh, It uh, it sounds like our students should visit uh, where you were because they complain about cold showers. We get showers anyway in this biological Mm -hmm. station. But they recognize that they've got it really very nice where we are, much nicer than the islanders' uh, natives have it. And so I think they they learn to appreciate that some, but uh, it is far different from uh, what they're used to here. Mm -hmm. So because this doctor is is stretched between all of
0: these different clinics, then in fact he's not present there very much, so I guess the work that your students do is very essential work then. I mean, this is not window dressing.
1: No, um, the nice part of it is that uh, we can provide some money that comes out of the tuition payment or the trip payment that students make. And uh, that goes towards paying these physicians to come to the remote clinics. They serve as teachers. So after the first couple of days of training, they are very good at saying to our students, okay, uh, interview this patient, tell me what he's got and how you treat it. And our students aren't always right, but the physician is right there to hear everything and make sure... You know, to kind of check up to make sure that things are done in in the proper fashion, and so it's a it's a great learning experience for our students, and we think it provides uh, care that otherwise wouldn't be provided to the mm. the patients that are there.
0: Let's talk about each of these clinics in which you work now, Doctor Emer. You brought all the stuff kind of with you, and did you end up setting up a clinic which otherwise
2: would not exist? Yes, on Father Oriole's mission grounds, he he has a main. Home where he and Father Marty the other priest, and maybe eleven seminarians, future potential priests, live. And on those grounds, there also is just other buildings. There's the main church. and uh, where I set up my clinic was probably the size of a small gymnasium. And with the five people that I trained, we um, just set up in stations around the circumference of this building. And um, you know we we meet meet the patient and get name and and age, and then uh, some basic screening testing would be done around the per, the like the perimeter of of the uh, of the building, um, depth perception, just basic visual acuity, how well do you see? Um, we had an automated instrument which can, you can shine in the eye, and it gives you a readout on what is the prescription for glasses without the patient having to interact at all beyond just looking at a flashing light. So that was important for me to ha- get that information before I saw the patient. Uh, Jim Reese be- became very adept at using an instrument, which is kind of difficult to use. It blows a puff of air in the eye, which is a nice portable uh, instrument for checking for glaucoma. I wanted to try to do some kind of screening for eye pathology, but the main thrust of the mission was that these poor people, they just, even basic glasses were necessary. So it was mainly glasses. But by the time I, I, I got the patient, um, you know, some things had been done for me to kind of pave the way for what I needed to do. My typical eye exam takes 45 minutes here in town. I, you know, take a long case history, and I really enjoy the fact that I can take my time with people. But at the clinic here, I really wanted to try to get through as many people as possible. I do not want to mess around, and I had to really cut to the chase more than I normally do and find out just what was wrong. So the preliminary testing in in this um, building um, by by the other people I trained really helped a lot. And I spent an average of 6 to 10 minutes with each person. And um, I really had to rely on on just making quick decisions. You know, okay, I, this is what your prescription is. I'm not going to fine-tune it. Let's, let's go. Here we go. Take your prescription. And my wife um, and um, Pat Mangie, um worked in the final step of this clinic um, um, where they dispensed the glasses. The Lions Club was just amazing how many glasses they can donate. And, mm. and I had 2,000 pair of finished prescriptions that were all labeled with the, with the power. So wow. Pat and my wife, Kim, would uh, pick out the prescription that best matched up with what I had made that decision of, okay, here's what they need. And in some cases, we had so many frames that they were, um, they were able to give the p- people a choice. You know, here's three. Which one do you like best?
0: <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Father
2: <laughs> Oriole said that was very important to not just say, here here's your glasses, but that they had a choice, that they felt they had some power in the Mm decision-making. And he said that really would even make them use the glasses more, Um, whether they really needed them a lot or not, that they had a say in Mm -hmm. picking out the final prescription. So that was the last step, and sometimes drops were needed. And um, Sandy Reese was real helpful with with drops, um, being a nurse, just uh, telling them how to use the drops, how many times a day, things like that.
0: Now, I'm assuming that in the vast majority of cases, this would be the first pair of glasses many of these people had ever had. Is that right?
2: Oh, yeah. I think so, because uh, there weren't a lot of real dramatic type of eye situations where somebody had a huge prescription, but in one case... Um, a woman had a prescription where she was 12 units of nearsighted. Now, if you're two units of nearsighted, you can't do much without without glasses. You really can't function real well. You're not going to be walking the walls or anything, but you're you're hurting visually. And this woman was 12 units of nearsighted. So when uh, she was the one dramatic one I had, where when I gave her the glasses, because the Lions Club actually had a pair of glasses that power, you know, that I could dispense to her. But when she first put them on, we had her just sit down for maybe half an hour and see if she could acclimate to the, to the prescription and seeing things mm. that she really never realized you can see. And she was a dramatic example of what you asked, where I don't know how she got through life, really, with that, because she probably had that prescription most of her life. And wow. And uh, she got up and walked around the, maybe after about half an hour, and she really had a dazed look on her face. I thought it would be a little more obvious and dramatic where I would see her smiling and just kissing everyone or something, but it was more <laughs> subdued, <laughs> but... Uh, I know that was her prescription, so that was a, a real dramatic one. Wow.
0: But otherwise, I mean, I think a lot of us have had the experience of, uh, especially that first pair of glasses we get, or maybe if we've been negligent and uh, haven't had our prescription changed in a while, then we get that new pair of glasses and we walk outside and we can see the leaves on the trees again. I mean, I'm, I'm just imagining this happening Uh, for many of the people that you ended up seeing. Are we talking about hundreds of people?
2: Well, I examined about 220 people in the two and a half days that I was working in the clinic, and I would say about 180 of the 220 needed glasses, maybe a little more. So, um, yeah, the big thing with them was that I didn't realize is that more of them were farsighted. In America, we're all... We go to college, we read, we, we, we use near vision more, and that actually makes more of us statistically nearsighted, which means we can't see far. But in this country, I think because of the illiteracy, more, many more, a high percentage that I did not expect were farsighted. But it's the same dramatic effect, because with farsightedness, especially if you're over the age of 40, you cannot read well at all without glasses. You can't function real well at near. So I was a little jealous of my wife, Kim, and Pat Manji when they dispensed the glasses, because... Because they're the ones that got all the hugs and oh thank you <laughs> thank you you know this is so great you know because uh, people were look at something up close That's and true. my gosh I can see details I can see I can so now I can mm. um, you know do things up close
0: that was so intriguing you said this before we went on the air the fact that uh, uh, for many of these people getting these glasses it's not so they could read a book many of them are illiterate or wouldn't have a book to read and if they knew how to read uh, but in many cases, this makes life so much better because of the kind of work that they need to do. Or, yeah, or just you'd be surprised.
2: I mean, just vision in general. What what the heck, we all need it far, mm-hmm. near, everywhere. And uh, just for the various handiwork and things that they do, just eating, enjoying eating more, hmm. you know, um, uh, it comes in handy. Yeah.
0: Now, you did see some other situations, of course, beyond poor vision. Uh, what was available to you if you found someone suffering from maybe some kind of fairly serious or maybe very serious eye disorder of one kind or another.
2: Well, that was frustrating because Father Orio mentioned to me before I even went that if I saw someone with cataracts where, where I knew I couldn't help them with glasses, and maybe of the 220 I examined, maybe about 15 to 20 had severe cataracts where um, it didn't even take an eye doctor to know. You could just see the white mm. in, the, in, the, in the black of the eye, you know, the, the opacity and in cases like that, it's very frustrating. Father basically said to me, he said, give the, give the people some hope. Tell them that that you you are going to try to get an ophthalmologist to come within a year. He said, say within a year, give them a time span that sounded somewhat reasonable, and that would make them feel good that something maybe was going to happen. So maybe about 15 to 20 people, um, that is what we have to maybe shoot for next time we go, that somehow or another we could maybe get an ophthalmologist to go, but that's a whole different story when you're talking about surgery, um, having the proper sterile facilities and um, whether or not an ophthalmologist, there's, there's several local ones that I'm sure would be willing to make a trip like this, but whether or not they really feel they could do it pr- the right way. Even the equipment used. Um, I know that Father mentioned that for cataract patients in the, in the next biggest city of Azua where there is an a, a, a ophthalmologist, that even the equipment he uses to do surgery is so much older than the modern equipment used by the doctors locally, that it might be a, a very difficult adjustment for the local ophthalmologist to use the older type equipment and to mm. feel that they're adept in doing the surgery properly. Wow. I, I
0: can see how I can see how this would be uh rewarding work and yet there is this element of, of frustration in that you wish it were possible to to do more.
2: The people are very good about it too. They were like, oh good, well maybe in a year, that's fine. They're they're just so much more happier than I think they should be, Mm. Uh, but I guess they don't know any better, you know, regarding their
1: Right, and some of of our students uh, experience the same kinds of frustration Uh, the the, the, uh, gamut of uh, maladies are prevalent there as they are in this country, so there's a lot of colds and flu and quite a number more parasite infections than we would see Mm. in this country, but the drugs are available they're cheap, and we have them sent again from that generic drug supplier in Europe but, uh there are at least a couple of times during the, the two-week uh, experience where students come in somewhat depressed about a particular patient that is a very nice person and yet has, a, let's say, a heart condition that cannot be treated, that uh, they just don't have the, either the medicine or the uh, surgery, uh, the capabilities to do the surgery required that we would demand in this country. Um, and so they, they just kind of have to tell that patient, well... You've got to go home and take it easy, and uh, the physician knows that, uh, that that person is not going to live very long. And, and you know, that can be a, a real uh, downer for our students. It also helps them appreciate what we have in this country. I, I should say that, that uh, you were talking about clinics earlier. Are th- they're pretty spartan in these uh, remote uh, uh, villages, some of them without running water or electricity, uh, but they are a room, say, 8 by 10, that uh, they can interview the patient, and then there's another maybe 8-by-10 room that serves as the pharmacy where the medications are stored. There is also one um, hospital in a large community um, on the island, the community called Alta Gracia. And um, when there are serious problems, uh, patients are taken to that hospital. And sometimes uh, our, our students have been holding onto an um, electrolyte bag to keep the patient uh, uh, you know, d- doing all right in the transit from the remote area to the, uh, the clinic, which could be 20 or 30 kilometers away.
2: Was there a language barrier much with the students, or did your students know Spanish pretty we, well?
1: We try to uh, divide our students up so that at least one in each group, there might be uh, three, two or three um, students with each physician visiting a clinic. And so uh, at least one of them should be pretty fluent in Spanish. The other two may not. So there's a lot of translation going on. Yes, you're right. Mm-hmm. But but uh, we try to make sure that at least one of them speaks Spanish well.
2: The language barrier was real tough for me. And uh, yeah. I will be going back maybe every year now because it was so rewarding. I just can't see not going back every year. With all the help you get, too, from people donating stuff, it really becomes a doable thing. But the language barrier was frustrating and sometimes funny because I would ha- ask a, an interpreter, local interpreter, you know, just to ask the patient, you know, what's basically wrong, far blur, near blur, what's... And they would end up talking for maybe a minute or two, back and forth, back and forth, and, and you know, he'd try to be nice, but say to the interpreter, will you will you get to it here? Uh, you know, 20 <laughs> people waiting, you know, what what is the basic problem? But, but a lot of the people really wanted to tell stories, you know, when he would ask mm-hmm. a simple question like that, so it would... Be frustrating, uh, you know, but it would get kind of too long. I wanted to keep going. Well,
0: I, I mean, I was, I was thinking for you, Doctor Emir, that uh, this had, Ymir, this had to be so interesting because it was so different from the way you're used to practicing.
2: Uh, it was almost fun, kind of, to do something so different like this to, to work quicker and, and to just make those quick decisions. I have the luxury here of taking my time. And sometimes I'll see something with the eyes and I, I'll say to a patient, You know, I'm going to get back to you. There's no big emergency here, but I'm going to actually look something up and, you know, I might need to refer you or I may not. But, you know, it's, it's a real nice luxury that I have. But in the same way, it was a nice change to really boom, 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 you know, make, make those quick decisions. For example, glaucoma in the United States is a, is a disease that a typical optometrists or ophthalmologists will maybe do you know five six seven different testing over different tests over maybe a a month or two to make a final diagnosis is it glaucoma or not and um you know there i had to make a decision was it glaucoma or not just doing basic tests and that was that was a little harder because that's a serious eye condition and um but when you look in the eye, in some cases, it's rather clear-cut. And, you know, you can say, well, I'm 85% sure, and this person can't go for five other tests. And uh, there's a good chance they're going to go blind in the next 5, 10 years if they don't get treatment for this. So, uh, you know, I, I would mm. I would make a decision on the spot there. So,
0: I mean, it sounds a little like uh, one of those... I- episodes of er where a school bus has been in an accident or something and so you have this huge lineup of people that you have to deal with very quickly
2: yeah the one example i would give of that that happened with me was a schoolboy was brought in right in the middle of this clinic you know i'm like 20 people are waiting for me it's really pretty hectic and they 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 uh, they carried him in he was about eight nine years old and he had hit somebody had thrown a rock and hit him in the eye and he had a condition called a hyphema i could see it without my regular equipment, um, that's bleeding in the eye, inside the eye, and mm. between the front of the eye and the uh, iris, the color part. And that's a, a potentially very serious condition because the blood clot that forms can really cause glaucoma and just cause a lot of other problems, cataracts, things like that. So that, that was one of those ER situations, and that was very frustrating because I could only do so much. There's no real big eye drops you can give to help that. It's more of a condition where you have to really be observed to make sure the blood's clearing properly. And I just did my best to say to Father Oriole, you know, he really needs to see a local doctor to see if this is clearing up. And I gave him some basic first aid of, you know, don't lay down but sit up for the next couple days to maybe help the blood drain better. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that wasn't one example that was Mm -hmm. dramatic.
0: Well, and you think about people living with that relatively primitive level of care, uh, the rest of the year. I mean, for most of their lives. I mean, living without so much that we take for granted here in the United States. I guess in that respect, it's a learning experience, not just for college students, but even for you, Roger. Oh yes. uh, I mean, and, and your faculty colleagues and you, Dr. Emer, are, are kind of sharing the same thing. I mean, even when you sort of know that in your head, still to see it with your own eyes and and to meet individuals who are living in these kind of conditions, it, it really makes you think.
1: Right. Uh, the, the one of the, um, uh, that all of us have, have noticed is how thankful the patients are for any kind of care that they get. It sounds like uh, you had the same experience. Yeah, a lot of hugs and yeah, all around. Yeah, And and um, uh, once in a while, even as we were driving to or from the clinic, someone would come out onto the road and, and wave down and the doctor would go off and all the students would gather around and and they they'd hear the little brief history and, and see the patient being treated and right along the road and and mm. it's, uh, uh it's just heartwarming to see this kind of uh, uh care going on and of course uh, uh children are are folks that just love to um to see our young students um because they look so much different from the you know they know that there's a big event going on and it's it's advertised pretty well in the area uh, formally we see somewhere around uh, fourteen hundred patients during the wow. two weeks that were there, and but uh, I think that the the students feel like they get to know certain young people very well and see them every day and wave and say "Hola" and you know just uh, just mm. a, it's a very uh, welcoming place and it uh, does give the students a real warm feeling for uh, people even though they are so poor. Mm.
0: Um, Roger, is it is it hard to convince students? To undertake this trip?
1: No, actually, uh, each time we've had a full contingent of students, huh. um, and there are now um, faculty that are interested in joining the trip as well. So we have three biologists: uh, myself, Dr. Pat Fafel, I mentioned earlier that I mean we kind of got it started, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this five years ago, and Dr. Scott Hagrenus, another biologist, likes to do this. Julio Rivera, you mentioned earlier, geographer, and Matt Zorn. So we can now switch off among faculty so that uh, each of us is excited about our turn Mm. to go to Nicaragua. That's why we think we'll be able to continue it for many years as well.
0: Very good. And uh, Dr. Emer. Uh, it sounds like this has been uh, the kind of experience for you that you are anxious to repeat. You are anxious to go back to the Dominican
2: Republic. I really am, you know, just seeing how how much I can help with um, sometimes basic pair of glasses, nothing fancy, but just basic reading glasses and how, how I know personally, of course, I'm Bias as an eye doctor, but then how much that can enrich your life. So, yeah, this is something I'm going to want to do yearly. And um, the parish I belong to now, St. Anne's, we have a a, twi- a twinning relationship with the parish where Father Oriole works in the Dominican Republic. So, I don't think I'll have trouble finding people to volunteer and learn how to do some basic testing for me each time. There'll probably be a, b- a bit of a waiting list. So, that'll be something that will be easy, more, more easy each year as I get to know the little hurdles to get over
0: to right. do it. Very good. Yeah, I suppose the the longer you do this, and maybe even the course over the course of that week, you probably figured out a lot of things on the fly about, you know, th- I mean, in now this what situation. I'm,
2: yeah, what prescriptions to bring with me? I know to bring a lot more farsightedness prescriptions next time, because we did almost run out of them. And mm-hmm. uh, there were maybe about 30 prescriptions I did have to bring back to the States and do, and then mail uh, back to the Dominican Republic. Some of them were a little more complicated than the Lions Club provision, you know, accounted for. So. Yeah.
0: You know, I'm I'm, I'm so glad this interview has happened on several different levels, but one of them is, I mean, hearing your story all of a sudden makes it, 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 it makes much more sense now when you see those donation boxes where the lions are collecting glasses. I mean, I've never donated, I've, and I have a million pair of glasses at home, <laughs> never have dawned on me to, to ever donate a pair, to just dig them out of a drawer and put them in the box. And now I understand. The good that can be made with yeah, pair a pair of couple glasses. of years,
2: they're going to be on somebody's face somewhere in some <laughs> yeah. third world country. Absolutely. So
0: I mean, what, what could be better than that? Uh, Dr. Peter Emer is an optometrist. Your practice again is where? On
2: 3612 Roosevelt Road Kenosha. What's the phone number there? Um, 652-1689.
0: Very good. And Dr. Roger Lindbergh is a professor of biology at uh, Carthage College and one of the participating faculty in this uh, uh, now annual trip to uh, Nicaragua. And uh, to both of you, I am so appreciative for the time you took out of busy schedules to uh, share these inspiring stories and best wishes with all of your future journeys to uh, Nicaragua, Dr. Lindberg, and uh, to the Dominican Republic or wherever you might go, uh, Dr. Emer. Thank Thank you. you. We thank thank both of you for joining us today on The Morning Show. Part two of our program today coming up in just a moment. You're on WGTD.